0: Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast, I'm senior producer Connor Boyle and coming up today, Paul Lewis, the voice of BBC Radio 4's Moneybox, joins us to talk about a topic that nearly all of us have had to think a little bit more about recently, the cost of living crisis and how to make our money go further. From understanding credit cards to buying a first home or perhaps having a go at investing, money is an unavoidable part of all of our lives. But it's also one of the most complex and often opaque areas to try and understand. Journalist and now author Paul Lewis is here to arm us with the facts. His new book, Money Box, aims to help you do more with your money. Let's join Paul in conversation with our host, Felicia Odanten, founder and director of the Black Economists Network.
1: Let's get started. Thank you for being here with us today, Paul.
0: It's my pleasure. I'm
2: I'm delighted to be here and to talk to you and uh, all the people listening.
1: It's really great to have you. So I know that you've written this excellent book called The Money Box, which is essentially a guide into how we can manage our finances all the way from when we were born to when we hit old age. But one thing that we'd be interested to know is a little bit more about you and your story. So how did you become the great money guru you are today?
2: (laughs) It's very kind of you to call me a great money guru. Um, Well, I started, my first real job was um, after I'd tried six months teaching maths, not very successfully, or at least from a discipline point of view, I wasn't very good at that. Uh, My first real job was with Age Concern, which is now, of course, Age UK. And one of the first things I had to do was try to explain to pensioners, um, the details of our state pension and rate rebates, that was a reduction in the rates on their home, which which we had then, uh, and then all the other complexities of benefits and means-tested benefits. And so getting down to the nitty-gritty of those things and finding the actual law, not relying on secondary sources, but finding the law, working out the arithmetic, um, became the job I did. And I started writing about it. I wrote uh, for, and still do for Saga magazine about it. And it, it just grew from there. And occasionally I'd turn up on the radio as a sort of expert. And then I was offered a job presenting an early morning show on Radio 5 Live. I had to get up at 3.30 every morning, which um, was not my favourite part of the job, I have to say. But I loved presenting. And then I was offered a job on Moneybox. And uh, as I say, I've been doing it all century, Felicia, since, <laughs> since the year 2000. So so that's me, really. I mean, that that's my sort of history of job history. That's my CV.
1: So you kind of just fell into this role and it's worked out for you really greatly, actually.
2: Yes, I, I fell into it. I mean, I have to say that my father was a, a maths teacher and he taught me maths. He taught me uh, my love of maths, really, and logic and, and being logical and, and accurate about things. He taught me all of that. And so... I'm always eternally grateful to him for it.
1: Oh, that's really nice. Um, Going back to the point you made about being a maths teacher, actually, there's been a lot of emphasis on the teaching of maths in schools right now. But do you think children are being taught the right skills they need to be financially literate?
2: To be financially literate, you really only have to be able to add up and subtract. And that's just counting one way and counting the other way. So it, it shouldn't be beyond anybody who's really who's been to school. Um, I mean, yes, you come across percentages, but all you really have to know about percentages is that the bigger they are for a debt, the worse they are. And the bigger they are on your savings, the better they are. But yeah, I, I don't know if they're taught the right things. I mean, I think some of the things you're taught, you know, trigonometry and algebra and all that kind of thing. Most people never really use in their life. This is very useful if you become a scientist, if you become an economist, all of that is immensely useful. But for most people, they need to be able to add, subtract, multiply, divide, and roughly know what a percentage is. Um, And then they can manage their personal finances. And of course, they have to be literate because they have to understand the sometimes very obscure things that the financial services industry puts out.
1: Yeah, so maybe this is a trickier question, But what do you think about the government's policy to um, increase mass education age?
2: Well, as I said, I think the basics that you really need in real life, unless you're going to be an engineer or you're going to be an architect or you're going to be a scientist, all of which are professions we should be encouraging people into, of course, if they can do that. But the maths you really need is the stuff you learn really in primary school and, and maybe first year of secondary school. I think it's good that people will carry on doing some maths. I think if you want to go more broadly, I think it's a shame that people don't do more foreign language at school, for example. That's been dropped even before 16 now, I think. So I think people should be doing practical mathematics. And I think the way to make maths approachable to people is to show them practical examples of of how it will work and how it will affect them. And so the personal finance bit that comes in the school curriculum is kind of separated out. It isn't in the maths class. It isn't in the English class, though I know a lot of good maths teachers do do it in those classes, and I think that's what should be encouraged so that people are learning why what is a percentage, why we need to know what is compound interest, things like that. Things I try to explain in my book. Um, but yes, I think that I think maths is great, but for most people, it should be taught in that very practical way of balancing your books, understanding your mortgage, understanding. Your credit card and, and your your savings and the return on your investments if you invest. Those kind of practical things, I think, which should be the essence of the longer term maths. And I'm sure there are some great maths teachers out there that are doing just that.
1: Yeah, I definitely would agree. Going back to what you mentioned earlier about your father being the one to teach you about maths and really getting you into it. I can definitely relate to that. My dad has definitely been the person who got me into maths and business and now I'm an economist. So I guess it led somewhere. It I, worked, I, <laughs> obviously it worked. <laughs> Yeah, so I wanted to actually ask you, do you think it's a good idea for parents to discuss money issues, maybe problems with their children?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I sometimes say, Um, you know, it's like teaching them about sex, do it as early as you can, as early as you think is age appropriate, and they can understand it. And for maths, the evidence is this was research done in Cambridge, that children learn the money habits from their parents at ages about seven and eight. So start talking to them about your money problems, you know, If if you're having problems paying your rent or you, you, you borrow money on a credit card, let them know where money comes from and where it goes to. And I think even earlier than that, maybe four or five, you can teach them the basics of, well, I think coins are very useful. I know most people may not, you know, young people today may not come across coins and notes that often, though. We do take billions of pounds out of cash machines every year. Um, but make them understand that, you know, you've got these coins. That is real money in a way. Money now is all in, in the computer. And, you know, you've got a piece of plastic in your hand. It's not clever enough to show you how much it's worth, how much is on there. It could be £5. It could be £5,000. Or, indeed, it could be minus £5 if you've gone a bit overdrawn. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Cards don't show you that, and I think it's almost too easy, and not, not just for children, but for adults. You know, we just tap our card, away we go. And I think you've got to explain to children that it is a physical thing. You know, it is basically pounds in a bank account, and they will go when you spend and come in when you earn or make some money or maybe sell something on eBay or whatever you do. <laughs> um, and understanding that relationship between money money and that physical thing is very important. Kids can learn that from the age of four or five, you know, playing shop with coins and notes, maybe. I think it's important. The other thing, and I mentioned this in the book, monopoly is brilliant because you've actually got real money, well, real pound, real 10 and 100 and pound notes. And you learn about giving change. And to me, Felicia, you learn the most econo- important economic financial lesson of all it's all very unfair. So get mm. that into your head from an early age playing Monopoly, <laughs> hating your brother or sister about <laughs> it.
1: I know, right? Um, yeah, I do remember doing role-play games with maybe my cousins and stuff and to try and understand money. But it's really interesting that kids are able to pick up on this from such a young age. Mm. Um,
2: yeah, It's really important. Well, that's what the research shows, and I think it, it, it fits in with certainly my experience of of my own children. They learn it from your habits. So talk to them about it. Talk about the difficulties. Talk about how you manage it. From a very young age, don't hide it from them. Just make sure they understand what's going on.
1: Yeah. I guess moving on from like childhood to, let's say, teens or young adulthood, a lot of us do think that how we are experiencing the world today is more unfair in terms of maybe the older generations have been able to save and buy a house, but us as young people, we're not able to we have to wait years and decades to save a house. And I actually wanted to ask you, is it because we are maybe spending more, our saving habits as young people are just worse than the older generation? Or is there something that has occurred that has meant that we actually do have it harder?
2: Yeah, I think what has occurred is that when I was in my twenties and wanted to buy a house, and I must say it was a real struggle. It was very difficult to raise a deposit to get the amount of money I needed each month. It was very difficult. So don't think it was easy in those days, but it was possible. And the reason it was possible is that house prices were kind of three times, three and a half times your pay, average pay, and you can borrow that. And that's really why that is the basis of a mortgage. There used to be, you know, you can borrow three and a half times your pay because it was enough. Now, in some parts of the country, it's more like 10 times your pay. Um, And I do think that it is much more difficult to buy a property simply for that reason and the properties that young people can afford often are very, very small flats. They're leasehold. They come with extra charges. It's much more difficult than it was to buy a house sitting on its own piece of land, which really gives you that security. So I do think that has changed very dramatically. House prices have gone completely out of kilter with wages, partly because there is a housing shortage. And of course, that's why rents are so expensive. I mean, a third of the adult population, roughly nearly a third, no, a bit more than a third actually, rents. They don't buy and they probably think they can never aspire to buying. So I I think rents are also going through the roof and it's very, very difficult for people to afford it. I think it's quite wrong that young people in work work from, you know, till Tuesday evening, maybe even Wednesday lunchtime in some parts of the country to pay their landlord and the rest of the week they're working for themselves. So I, I do think that Rents are also a problem, not just buying a home.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm currently renting and I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Wednesday afternoon, you're feeling happy. (laughs) (laughs) I know. um, We just did analysis on the latest house price data release and house prices are still growing. But
2: but tell me, I mean, you're Felicia, you're an economist. The one bit of economics I understand is supply and demand. And we know that there is not an adequate supply of homes. And we know there is a growing demand because there are more people. So that, is that the driving force? I know mortgages are important. If no one can get a mortgage, <laughs> I think a lot of people couldn't buy a house. But it's that imbalance between supply and demand that is the problem. Am I right about that?
1: I think we definitely do need more supply but we need more supply in the right areas and ultimately has to be affordable because essentially you have a big group of renters who could afford well before the interest rates went up, could afford mortgages given how much they're paying monthly on rent, but it's saving for that big deposit, which is the issue. And the fact that house prices are just surging and just increasing and increasing makes it difficult. So having the right enough supply that is targeted to the right group in the right areas is really important as well. Yeah, I
2: think. good. Thank you. That's very helpful.
1: <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, I look at this data and I'm like, oh, when am I going to buy a house? <laughs> mm,
2: I'm sure you but, are. Yeah, and you're in work and you have a reasonably good job. I mean, this is the problem, isn't it? That right, people aren't in work and many people who don't have a reasonably good job. You know, that is the problem, and and they it must be a. a a distant dream for many people. We
1: just gotta hang in there, I guess. Hopefully yeah. things change. Um house prices are growing, but they're slowing down. Mm. Um so let's see what happens in the future. Yeah. So let's go on to the other end of the spectrum, which is pensions when you're nearing old age. So I um recently did some analysis and report on what it would mean to have a living pension. That is to be able to have a pension pot which is gonna deliver an adequate standard of living when you reach retirement. And our analysis showed that actually the vast majority of people haven't been able to save the adequate amount, which is about seventy thousand pounds. What do you think is the driver behind so many people not being able to reach that target amount?
2: Well, I think the problem is that people don't pay enough into it. Now, that, that, I'm not saying they they choose not to; either they can't, or millions of people, ten million people, I think. Are, are in a pension scheme through what's called auto-enrolment. When you get a job, and you earn more than 10,000 pounds, you're automatically enrolled into a pension scheme in your work. Now, the the rules for auto-enrolment are that employers have to put in a certain amount and you have to put in a certain amount. It's often said to be 8% in total, It cannot be 8%. It's, it's of a band of earnings. The very most that goes in is 7% of your, of your pay. And for many low paid people, it's more like four or 5%. That is not going to buy you an adequate pension. And this is my worry about automatic enrollment, that it will not buy people adequate pensions, even if they're in the scheme from 22 when it first begins right up to 67 or whatever it is, people retire when they reach that that age. So I think, I mean, the only real rule about pensions is put in as much as you can from as young as you can. That, of course, is easy to say and can be very hard to do. But the younger you start, the more gross they'll be in your fund. You know, it, they earn dividends, they earn interest, and that is then earns interest on itself. It's called compound interest. I explain in the book, I hope reasonably simply so the, the younger you start the better it is and the more you put in the better it is and one of the problems at the moment is because of the cost of living crisis some people are choosing or perhaps being encouraged to pull out of auto-enrollment which you are allowed to do and to say well look it, it's so much out of my monthly pay I just can't afford it I've got to feed my family or I've got to pay my mortgage which is going up Um, or I've got to pay my energy bill. I mean, those are the three big things that are affecting people at the moment, aren't they? Mortgages uh, and rent, food and energy bills. Um, So they stop paying in. I hate to say it, but it's a kind of short-sighted way to raise money. It's probably better than borrowing at, at high rates of interest. But if you don't pay in, your employer doesn't pay in and the good old chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, doesn't pay. And I don't <laughs> use that phrase very much. But in pensions, you know, the Treasury pays. If you pay, if you pay in £100, pounds, it's boosted to 125 by the Treasury. Now, that's worth having, even more if you're a higher rate taxpayer. That's worth having. So if you stop paying in, you lose those extra bits going into your pension. So if people do have to pull out, and I fully understand why some people feel they do, I really encourage them in a couple of years when things are looking perhaps a little bit better, they will start paying in again because it is in their long-term interest. Having said that, the amounts going in automatically are not enough and you should actually go to your employer and say, well, look, how about you putting in a bit more if I put in a bit more? Some employers are very open to that. Others, of course, won't be, but some are, so it's worth trying.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Water enrollment was great in getting people to participate in pension saving. But in terms of the actual amounts that we're putting in, it's Mm. just not cutting it for the future. So if we can, it's definitely important um, for us to start putting in more. And you also touched on something I did want to talk about, which was the cost of living crisis. And this is definitely a different um, a different time and a difficult time. It's not like what we experienced in COVID where we had lots of government support, um, there was a bit more solidarity. It's kind of hard and it's it looks like it's going to be here for a while. And I wanted to ask you what you think people can do to help manage some of their finances.
2: I think one of the problems with this is that there's a whole new group. You know, they're often called the squeezed middle. People who thought they were okay are suddenly finding Mortgage up, supermarket bill up and energy bills up that they're not okay. They can't manage. And they have got to learn the lessons that a lot of lower income people have already learned because they have to. You know, Uh, so I think being very careful with with the shopping, you know, buying own brands, looking at the bottom shelves in the supermarket where things are, uh, are sometimes cheaper, the things they don't want you to to spend your money on. Those are sort of tips. But really, you've got to start thinking of, first of all, cutting expenditure, and secondly, maybe earning a bit more. Now, all of us, I think, and I I say this because I've mentioned this so many times and always somebody says, oh, yes, I did that or I realised that. With, with your mobile phone, it's very tempting to download an app, either maybe a game or maybe it's, oh, a really nice weather app, you know, that you think, oh, that will really tell me the weather. But after a while, you think, well, it's not really any different from the ones I can get free. But what you do is you, you click on it and you think, oh, it's free. That's fine. But, of course, it's not free in the long term. And after three months, wham. £6.99 a month comes off your debit, your bank <laughs> yeah. account or your credit card. Or if it's an annual thing, it might be £29.99 or even more. And sometimes if you buy things online, and this is this has been true of things like makeup and seeds for gardens, that kind of thing, you think, oh, that's reasonable and they arrive. And then in a month, another lot arrives and you've got to pay for them as well. And that is a real shock to people. So look at your bank account – I know it sounds boring, but it can be quite fun (laughs) if you find things that you don't know what they are, check them out and cancel them. And the important thing to remember is your bank or building society uh, or your credit card provider must stop them if you ask. You don't have to go to the company. Just tell your bank or your credit card provider they must do it. Then you can go to the company if you want. Um, They'll soon get in touch with you if they think you owe them money, which you probably don't because the way that they get the agreements is pretty obscure sometimes. So stop those. And also streaming services. I mean, I don't know how many you have. I'm sure I've got more than I should have. But, you know, do you really need, you know, Netflix and Disney Plus and Paramount Plus and Sky and all the Apple TV? You know, just find the ones you actually use and enjoy not the ones you flick through and say, well, there's not much to watch there and cancel them because then a lot of people are cancelling Netflix at the moment. You And I mentioned them because we just happen to have some figures on that, I think. Um, <laughs> then you will save that money and you won't miss it. You really won't miss it. So cut down on spending. And then on the other side, think about, can I do a bit more work, a bit of overtime? Are there things in the house that I don't really need that maybe I could sell on eBay, you know, and start doing that? Or can I do a little temporary job, maybe maybe babysitting or dog walking for money or maybe bookkeeping for somebody, you know, or sorting out their computer, their, their internet, which many people w- would like help with that. So use your skills. Think what your skills are and see if you can use those to make a bit of extra money. If you earn more than a £1,000 in a year, you have to tell His Majesty's Revenue and Customs, HMRC. But if you keep it under a thousand pounds, you don't. Um, So it's worth doing it. It's that balance, you know, boosting your income a bit and cutting your savings a bit can help you stay in balance and not borrow to pay for the groceries, which is really a road to difficulties.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I can definitely relate to the streaming services. And what was actually helping me was sharing with my family members passwords but i think that might be not quite legal anymore
2: (laughs) no i think they're beginning to clamp down on that yeah the secretary of state the um, media said she did it didn't she but they will clamp down on it and technically it it is illegal unless the firm says you can do it so it's a bit of a gray area but it's certainly something that people should be aware of um, that they don't want suddenly to find they're paying more or suddenly to find it's being cut off or whatever so i think people should be careful about that but of course Very tempting, especially in a cost-of-living crisis. Yes,
1: it is. Yeah, I cancelled that once I found out because I do not want to get into the trouble. (laughs) (laughs) So we know that, you know, everyone's feeling the pinch, but we do know that this crisis is actually hitting other groups more than it might hit the majority of people. And that's depending on like if you're a lower income household and particularly minority groups, for example, ethnic minorities, or perhaps if you're from a disabled household, etc. And I wanted to um, get your thoughts on how people from different groups can manage the crisis and what you've seen
2: in your work. Well, I suppose it it is the same rules for everybody when it comes to managing it, but you're absolutely right that the evidence does show. Uh, I mean, let me talk about disabled people first because they, of course, can have much higher energy costs. They either have to keep warm because of their disability, they might have machines to run that are important for their health or indeed even their life. They will find their expenses are higher and their incomes generally are lower because they have fewer opportunities. So I think that is a real problem and I don't think disability is recognised in the way it should be as something that, that simply gives you more cost. You know, there are so many benefits that are means tested, but there are benefits disabled people can get and should get that are just because they're disabled. They're not enough, but they are there. And I think with ethnic minorities, um, it, it is that lack of opportunity. I mean, if you look at it, uh, their pay is less. So therefore, they're going to feel the rising prices even more. And I have to say, it's also the same for women, single women, perhaps, that women still earn less in this country, despite what is it, 40, 50 years of equality laws, I think, isn't it? They still earn less. There is still a gender gap in pay. And that's something that, you know, I don't think they should have to deal with. And I don't think ethnic minorities should have to deal with it. I think the people who employ them should be dealing with it. Let them look, let them do an audit of their company and say, why am I paying that person less than that person? Is it some sort of hidden discrimination in myself that I'm doing that? And I really think, Employers have really got to look at this. And uh, there are a number of good employers, of course, who do, but employers have to look at it and not just think um, that they want to get people uh, at the cheapest level they can. So it's it's the people who cause the problem, not the people who suffer from it, who should be responsible for sorting it out.
0: of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool and I love the dance piece Sutra inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin Monks and we've got a special treat for our listeners Marquee TV offers 3 months of access for just 99 cents that's right 3 months for only 99 cents with the code Squared simply visit Marquee.tv and use the promo code Squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with Marquee TV
1: I do have another question for you, Paul, though. Given that there has been a rise of credit that's available, I wanted to ask if you had any particular thoughts on Klarna. I know you mentioned this a little bit in your book, but I don't want to give any spoilers. So,
2: <laughs> <laughs> Well, Klarna is the, I mean, most people will know, but I'll just, Klarna is the system where you find it, if you buy things online, you even find it in shops now a lot, you want to buy something and they say, Oh, would you like to split it into three? It won't cost you anything. There's no interest charge. So you pay a third now, a third in a month, I think, and then a third a month, a month after that. And it's not just Klarna. There are several of these mm. Buy now, pay later, BNPL systems with different rules and slightly different ways of organising it. Now, it's like any credit, Felicia. If you manage it properly, it's, it can be a good thing. For example, with something like Planner, you buy something online and you're not quite sure which colour you want or not quite sure which size will fit you. So you order three or four, you try them on, you like one of them, you send the other three back. And of course, we have a right, an absolute right with online goods to send things back for no reason. If we don't have to have a a reason for it, if we do it within, if we tell the company within 14 days and then send it back within another 14 days, absolute right. They have to give you your money back. You might have to pay postage, but you have to get your money back. Um, So people use it in that positive way. You know, they, they buy lots of stuff. They try them on. They don't like most of them, so they send them back. That's fine as long as you do that and then you can pay it off when the bill finally comes for the one you've kept. But my worry is, and there is some evidence of this from the debt advice charities, that they are seeing more and more people who have got into serious debt with Buy Now, Pay Later. They've bought too much and it seems great, doesn't it? Oh, it's a third the price, I know. I'll buy another thing. I'll buy two things because it, it still won't cost me as much. And this, of course, is why retailers pay the Buy Now, Pay Later company to be involved with them because the retailers know they will sell more, which means we buy more. So you've got to be very careful about it and don't buy things just because they seem cheap or much cheaper now, um, almost free for a while and it's interest free. Of course, if you're late with your payments, some buy now, pay laters do charge you a fee. Ultimately, they will all try and reclaim that money, obviously, through ultimately through the courts, which can be a very unpleasant process. So be very careful with buy now, pay later. And it's the same with any credit. It's the same with credit cards. If you manage them properly, they can be great. If you don't manage them, you can end up with growing debt as you keep borrowing more to pay the debt and to buy you know, your next supermarket shop or your next outfit. Yeah, that's very wise. And it's not just Klana, I mean the banks are doing it now. They're all jumping on this bandwagon. You know, almost everything when I go online to buy something uh, with with PayPal or an eBay or whatever, I'm always said, Oh, you don't you know, pay in three, you don't have to pay it now. You can pay it over without in easy installments, etc. But of course, easy installments are only easy if you don't have lots and lots of easy installments yeah. <laughs> that go beyond what you can afford. So you have to be very careful of it. Very careful.
1: Yeah. It makes me anxious because I'm seeing that it's being more and more available for like smaller and smaller products. So I've I've heard people are using it for groceries. But as you said, if we manage it well, just like with any other credit products, it can be a useful resource.
2: It can. It can. Yes. But, but also a very dangerous one if you don't.
1: Yeah. So... Wise words from Paul. Manage it well. (laughs) Um, I just wanted to go on to some of the questions people had sent through earlier. One interesting question, since we've talked about credits and debts, um, let's talk about investments and savings. And one thing that has been on people's mind, I guess, is like crypto. Is it a good idea to invest in crypto? Someone has asked.
2: Yeah, you don't invest in crypto. You buy it. And then you hope you can sell it for a profit at some point in the future. So in that sense, it's like gold. Um, it's not an investment. It's something that you hope will grow in value. And, of course, hope someone will buy when you want to sell it. Um, but it's not like gold in other ways, because gold is physical. Uh, it's, I mean, nothing has a real value. I mean, all money is all made up by humans, obviously. But gold is a very useful thing that you can use for all sorts of things, whether it's in electronics or jewelry or whatever. So gold has some use. Crypto has no use at all. It is just a gamble, a speculation, if you prefer. And the problem with the gamble is that very often uh, the casino is surrounded by thieves. And in in the worst (laughs) case, it's run by thieves. I think there have been 12 major collapses of businesses connected with cryptocurrencies in the last 12 months in in 2022. The biggest, of course, was Um, FTX, which collapsed. And we we think about a billion pounds is owed to their customers. So They're not going to get it back. A billion pounds. Another one was raided by the police in Spain uh, last week, I think, um, on suspicion of money laundering. There are some very odd characters surrounding cryptocurrency. And people look at it and they think, oh, I only paid 15,000 pounds for that Bitcoin. And Gosh, it's worth 17000 now. I've made £2,000. No, you haven't. You've only made £2,000 when you sell it for real money. Mm. And, you know, if you wait another week, it might be worth £12,000. You've lost it all. So it's a gamble. It's a speculation. Now, I know there are people who say, you know, I've made a lot of money out of it. I mean, they're usually a second cousin of a friend's brother, aren't they? The sort of people you hear that, oh, he made a lot of money. Real people who've made money out of cryptocurrencies are few and far between. They are the people who run the systems rather than the people who buy and sell it. So be very, very careful. And as I often say, if you're going to dip your toe into that water, make sure it's a toe you're happy to lose because you probably will
1: definitely agree. It's very risky. And it's basically, I think you've put in your book, it's a gamble, essentially.
2: It is. Though though some people say it's not a gamble, it's speculation. There is a slight difference between the two. I mean, gambling is like, you know, going into a casino. It's a bit different, but I don't think it's that different. It it is (laughs) a, a real risk, a real risk.
1: And talking about investments, someone asked, should we keep our money in cash or should we invest
2: it? Well, there's no easy answer to that. If you're if you're investing for the long term, and for me that means 20 years or more, uh, then investment. You know, hitch your wagon to the stock market. Um, have a good tracker that follows the stock market and get one with the cheapest possible costs because it's costs that eat away at your money. You know, your money is in a little pot, and there are taps along the bottom, and people can come along and take a bit of your money out every year or every month be very careful about charges. The lowest possible charges in a tracker fund in the long term is the way to grow your money best. That is what all the evidence shows. In a shorter term, and that could be as little, uh, you know, as much as 10 years, even five years, certainly, then cash can be as good. I mean, they've gone now, but in November, you could get 5.05% on your cash, For five years. So a guarantee that over the next five years, you'll be paid just over 5% return on your cash. And of course, your cash isn't at risk. Whereas with any investment, your cash is at risk because basically you give it to someone else and hope they make it grow. So that was a very tempting offer. It's still about 4.5% you can get over five years. If you go to a financial advisor and you say, I want a guaranteed return of 4.5% every year for five years, what can you offer me? There is no investment they will offer you to do that because they will not give any sort of guarantee. So that was the temptation. That's the temptation for cash for the short term. Make sure it's earning the best possible interest rate, which should be just under 3% if it's instant access and just over 4% if you're tying it up for a year or more. Um, So make sure you're getting that. Don't stick with your high street bank because they will pay you half that. The average rate is about half those best buy rates. And I always say at the website, savingschampion.co.uk, it has the Mm. current best buys and they're updated every day. In fact, more than every day, usually. So try that. Now, moving on to investment, as I said, it is a bit of a risk, but if it's the long term and you have a tracker and you um, have low charges, it can be very good. The evidence is in the long term, people who say, oh, I can manage your money and make more for you, they don't do it, not in the long term. And even more important, even if they do, you can't predict at the start who will do it. So if you, if you go with a fund manager, they will charge you more, far more than a tracker, will, a tracker fund will charge. And there is no guarantee they'll make you more. And in the long run, they won't make you more. So be very careful about investment. And the other thing I must say before we leave investment is, do not ever, ever go to social media and ask about investment. You will get cons, you will get false information, you will get fake advice, and you will get get get-rich-quick schemes, which may well be illegal and probably won't work anyway. So never, ever do it. It, That is the general rule that is safest.
1: Yeah, I think that was one of the strongest warnings I got in your book (laughs) when I was reading it. (laughs) It was quite strong,
2: yes, it was. was
1: (laughs) So I would definitely... Definitely heard, <laughs> but thank you for that. Um, another question we've got is: what is the best way to handle debt? And if you have savings, should you use your savings to pay off the debt, or should you pay off the debt separately? What is the best way to handle well,
2: debt? Well, it partly depends what sort of debt it is. But let's say it's a credit card, because a lot of people use credit cards, and now they're not they're not paying them off. They're buying their groceries, or they're buying their clothes, or they're even you know paying their energy bills for heaven's sake with credit cards. Um, that would cost you on average about 26% a year. That means if you have a thousand pounds of debt, you will pay 260 pounds during the year and you'll still have a thousand pounds of debt. If you've got savings, there's no real point in borrowing money. You should use your savings because I mean, I was talking about a good return of 4% earlier, way below the cost of debt. Now, that's easy to say. And, you know, people say, oh, but I like having a little nest egg. I can fully understand that. And I must confess, uh, Felicia, I've done this in the past. I've had an overdraft and I have had a savings account for, for my tax because it, it. I called it my sleep at night money because I knew I <laughs> could pay my tax. So, you know, it, it, it's a golden rule. It's an ideal rule. But of course, people might break it. But savings should be used to pay off debt rather than uh, saving money because that will be much more economically effective in the long term. If you have spare money, pay off debt first. Pay off the most expensive debt first. Make sure you manage your debt properly. But of course, there are people. There's a growing number of people who get into serious debt. And again, <laughs> another golden rule: if um, if debt keeps you awake at night, or if the first thing you think of in the morning is oh my debt, you know you worry about it, you're in trouble. So go to one of the big national debt charities, nationaldebtline.org or stepchange.org or, of course, citizensadvice.org.uk. Find your local one and get some face-to-face advice on debt if you can. They have been given money to do that, uh, well, certainly throughout England and Wales and I think in Scotland as well. And in Northern Ireland there is, um, there is an advice service similar to it. So get advice and those people, you know, don't be embarrassed about your debt, however big it is. They have seen worse, believe me. (laughs) So don't be embarrassed. Explain the situation. Be completely honest. And they will help you, first of all, manage it. And secondly, they will get some of the interest rates frozen. They might even get some of your debt written off. So that is why it's worth going for advice. So please get advice if debt really worries you because those organizations can help you.
1: Yeah, that's really important, being able to speak about your issues because the problem shared is a problem halved. So, I guess another question that has come through is I guess it's related to the topic of relationships and money management. And I know you have a chapter on this in your book. Um, This question says, I'm I'm about to get married. Is a joint bank account a good idea?
2: Right. Yes. Love and Money is a separate chapter because, of course, that can, you know, the book goes, as you said, from naught to 99. But Love can come at any age, so it has a separate chapter <laughs> love and money. Well, managing your finances when you start living with someone is, is a big step. It's a, it's a really big step and very important to manage it properly. Now, my advice is have a joint account for your joint expenses. So maybe the rent, maybe the mortgage, maybe your supermarket bill, maybe, <laughs> maybe your TV streaming service. Those are the joint things. But only use that joint account for those things you both use. And you put into it, ideally, I suppose, 50-50. But if one of you earns a lot more than the other, or or as one person said to me, he eats all the food. It's not fair (laughs) that I have to pay half the bill. Then, you know, you come to an agreement. You know, you might pay in 60-40 or 70-30 or whatever it is. Come to an agreement, pay that into that joint account. And that is only used for that. But all the rest of your money, assuming there is some, have your own account. And the importance of that is that that's your money individually to spend on what you want. And you must remember that, you know, if your partner spends their money on what they want and you think, oh, goodness, what have they bought? Don't criticise them. It's their money. (laughs) They've got to be able to be, you know, they've got to be able to be foolish or sensible with it. So I do think that's an important thing about relationships. The other problem with joint accounts, if you have all your money in one joint account, particularly a savings account, is that if your relationship ends, and let's face it, a lot of them do, probably most of them ultimately, you both own all that money in that joint account and one of you can take it all out and run away. So it's not they can only take half out. They can take all of it out. So that is a danger of joint accounts with someone that you may not be that comfortable with. You may not have met. You may be living together for a fairly short time be very careful about joint accounts for all your money because basically you're giving them the right to take it. Joint debts, for example, you take out a bank loan in joint names. You have a joint mortgage. There you both owe all the money. So if one of you goes away and is lost or out of work and can't be found, the lender will come to the one with the money, with the job, for the whole debt. And that's another thing people don't always realize about joint debts. Now, joint mortgage you probably have to have, but other things, be very careful about joint debts. It's a way that some people try to control the other partner. It's called coercive control. It's a big problem. It's only recently become uh, an accepted illegal part of domestic violence, coercive control over your finances. So be very cautious if your partner is trying to control you by saying, I'm going to deal with this, you know. You don't need to work. I'll earn all the money and all that kind of thing. That is very dangerous. So be very aware of coercive control and get help from one of the charities that deals with it. There's a couple of them that are very good um, because, you know, it creeps up on you. You don't realize it's happening.
1: Mm, that's really interesting and really useful to know, especially on the topic of relationships and love. Um, another question that someone has asked is, what is the best way to ask for a pay rise?
2: Yes, this is a very interesting one because, of course, a lot of people are doing this. And uh, I have to say, they did, we did cover this on Moneybox Live. It wasn't me doing it. I had nothing to do with it. But I listened to it and it was very interesting. Um, and we did it on Saturday, actually, as well. Somebody was on, that prog- on my program talking about it. And I thought the most important takeaway point for me was, don't go to your boss and say, oh, I'm really worried about money. My mortgage is up. My food bills are up. My energy bills are up. Don't talk about that. Don't talk about you. Talk about what you can do for them. So talk about your skills, what you've done for the company, how you've improved things, how you deserve more pay. You've got to make sure you explain that you deserve it. It's not that you need it, but you deserve it. And you've done your research. You've looked at other comparable people in similar jobs. And, you know, I really don't want to leave you in this job because I like you. I like the work. But if I can get, a, you know, an extra 20 percent at Joe Blogs is, I might go to Joe Blogs is. So just have that conversation. Don't make threats. Don't say, oh, I'm going to walk out if you don't give me a pay rise. Just be careful. But what can you do for them is the important thing, not what they can do for you.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. Being able to remind your employers that it's a mutual exchange. Another question we have through, interesting one, is if we're in such hard times, why did supermarkets report such good numbers? after the holiday period I think that's interesting especially since we've seen um, you know prices go up energy bills even food costs food inflation has been a big big issue
2: yes I mean I've seen some figures and uh, I haven't got these at my fingertips but certainly it showed that we were spending more but we were actually getting less so the supermarkets may well say you know People are spending more, but are they getting more? And I think the answer very often is they're not, because prices have gone up. Now supermarkets really try to squeeze down on prices, and of course they squeeze suppliers, so they are complaining <laughs> that they're not getting enough for their produce if they're if they're farmers or other things that they sell to supermarkets. So you, you know. But I do think food prices are going up, but people are actually getting a bit less for what inevitably for what they buy. So. Uh, and I think people have to be very careful. You know, buy the own brands, As I think I said earlier, buy the cheaper things, and you 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 know you won't miss the the, the top branded goods that you're familiar with. Uh, sorry, this is going a bit off the question, but there are. There, there is a hierarchy of supermarkets and I have to say Little and Aldi always come down as the cheapest <laughs> and I think Waitrose always comes as the most expensive and this is a survey not by me but of course but by which the consumer organisation so you know you can spend a lot more by going to the wrong supermarket now of course if it's your local one and you don't have a car and, you know, you've got to get three buses to get there and spend hours, then obviously people will go to the one that's nearest, but just be careful about making sure that you, you go to the shop that, that's the least expensive. Um, and again, this is not something we have to teach people who are on low incomes. They've always been doing it, but maybe some of those who have been used to having enough to manage, they have to think about this more. So that's, that's my explanation. Um, and I must admit it's a bit of a it's a bit of a shot in the dark, but I think supermarkets are reporting good figures because people are spending more. But I don't think they're necessarily getting more. They're possibly getting less.
1: I guess they have to protect their profit margins, right?
2: <laughs> of course. Of course. Um,
1: I've definitely noticed I've been getting a lot less. I buy popcorn and the popcorn packet has become smaller oh, over time.
2: Shrinkflation <laughs> tr- it's called, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. The, the chocolate bar that used to be 600 grams, now it's 400 grams, but it still costs the same. I mean, that is a very familiar technique of, of manufacturers that they make they make things a bit smaller, but they still charge you the same. That is a very familiar technique. And you don't even notice because you're actually spending the same, but you just think, oh, I better go and buy another one. It's run out.
1: Yeah, I know, right? Um, another question is more of a general question. Um, and I guess it's more on, I guess, being a financial educator to the masses. What do you think are the most common misconceptions about money?
2: Goodness. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I think, I think people don't. I think well, there's all sorts of things. I mean, first of all, I don't think people realise just how much money comes off what they earn. You know, a third of it um, above a certain limit goes straight to the the Chancellor. Did I, did I call him the good old Chancellor earlier? Maybe I did. <laughs> but it goes straight straight to the tax authorities anyway. So if you earn an extra twenty pounds, a third of that, seven pounds on. £7 nearly goes to the the tax authorities. So I think people don't realise just how that works. I think people don't realise about debt and they don't realise what expensive debt is. And it's a very simple way to look at debt. You know, every debt that's advertised, every loan, whether it's a credit card or personal loan or or buying something on on credit, they have to have what they call APR, annual percentage rate, with a percentage sign. So it will say 12% APR or... 26% APR when they advertise it. And all you have to know about that figure, because nobody actually quite understands how APR is worked out, to be honest. I've tried it with a spreadsheet. It's very difficult. Um, All you have to remember is the bigger the percentage, the more expensive the debt. And if you go online, you know, you can find debts at 99%. The maximum is something like 1,600%. Those are really bad news because they are the most expensive debt. So the bigger the APR, the worse the debt. So always look for a low APR. And of course, you can get 0% credit cards that will, for a period of time, you don't pay any interest. That's fine as long as you pay it off at the right moment at the end. So I think debt, people don't really fully understand the cost of debt. And as I said, 26% APR means £1,000 debt, you're paying 260 quid. that's £5 a week. For nothing just to the bank for interest so you've got to think about oh. debt, and that would be my big top tip actually think about debt and, and what percentages mean
1: yeah that is really important moving on to the topic of energy bills um someone has asked if smart meters actually save money
2: well that's a very interesting question smart meters certainly save money for the um The the distributors for the energy firms, because they've sacked all their meter readers, for example. (laughs) And if you look at the figures the government has published, uh, I think it's two thirds. It's on my website, but I think it's two thirds of of the alleged savings are made by the suppliers, whether it's the networks or the people who supply the fuel or whatever. That's where the savings are made. The other third is supposed to be saved by us. But it's only saved by us. If we watch that little meter go round. you know, assuming they work, they, sometimes they do go wrong. watch that little meter go round and think, oh, gosh, it costs a lot of money to boil a kettle. I'll stop doing it. We are supposed to save money by being more aware of the cost. Whether we actually do, I'm not sure. There is some evidence that we do save a bit. But don't forget, we're all paying for smart meters. At, is it £26, I think, on the last year's bill was towards the multi-billion pound cost of fitting smart meters to every home in the country. Not that they've managed that yet, but when they do. So I don't know. They save money if you take notice of that little meter that tells you how much you're spending and adjust your use accordingly. But I'm not convinced that people need a smart meter to know that Boiling water costs money with electricity, or putting the heating up costs money. Putting on the electric heat, electric fan heater costs a lot of money. Anything that you use electricity to heat costs money. So, cut back on that. You can save more money with that thought. You know, just boiling a cup full of water in the kettle rather than filling it up and boiling the whole lot and then boiling it again when you want another cup of tea. So, little things like that can save you money. They're dwarfed really by the massive rise in fuel bills, you know, double what they were last winter, going up again in April. Hopefully, maybe, maybe shading down a little bit later this year, but we're not quite sure about that. But smart meters are not the answer to saving money. They only give you information, they don't save any money. And it's up to you how you use that information.
1: That's really helpful, actually, because I have a smart meter and I'm watching it go up and I'm like, Hmm, at what point do I intervene with my behavior? Is it helping me or do I need to do something? But no, that's actually really helpful. <laughs> I'll
2: tell you my challenge, Felicia, look at your smart meter. Can you make it stop turning completely? Because it's very difficult now. You know, we have devices plugged in, we have charging things plugged in, we have the television plugged in, the computer or the laptop plugged in. It's very hard to use zero Electricity, And you're still paying a standing charge, of course, but for the actual electricity or gas, very hard. So that's my challenge to people. <laughs> Try and use nothing and see if it's possible. And if it's not, that is just draining away every time, every minute that passes, that, that is draining away because you have all this stuff plugged in because it's just a bit more convenient. Yeah, I have a follow-up question.
1: So when, for example, you're not in the house, maybe the Christmas period you've gone away and you come back and you see your smart meter is still moving. What actually causes you to still pay money for
2: Well, there are, two, there are two things that you pay money for whatever happens. One is the standing charge, um, and if you've got a, um, a prepayment meter, the scandal is that if you if you've no more money on it and your power goes off and your heating goes off, you're sitting there in the cold and the dark, and you're still paying the standing charge, which wow. for gas and electricity together is, is over six pounds a week. So that is one thing that that charges you, but that won't be shown on your smart meter. No, it is the devices. It's the things that are always plugged in. Um, And there are some things that probably have to be. I mean, you know, your television updates sometimes at night. If you've got a a skybox or something, it updates overnight. If you've got a um, charging device that may not be actually be charging anything, but you feel your charging devices, are they warm? If the answer is yes, they are using electricity. (laughs) So unplug them or turn them off, but, but, you know, don't leave them in not actually doing anything for you. And there are some things like, I don't know, a burglar alarm, a boiler, for example, a gas boiler, then that has electricity to it all the time, but they don't really use any significant amounts. It is the devices, I think, that use the electricity. So yes, always make sure that you have things that are getting warm, are costing you money. That is the rule.
1: That's actually really helpful because I guess I couldn't unplug my fridge or that would be a disaster.
2: <laughs> no, you shouldn't unplug. the no, fridge <laughs> is a much better example than mine. A fridge or a freezer, you can't unplug it. Though I have to say, the idea is with smart meters and smart devices that the energy company, the supplier, will be able to switch off your freezer if there's a shortage of power And if it switches it off, you know, for a couple of hours in the night, doesn't really matter. It'll still be very cold in there. So that is the plan to try and balance the energy usage by them taking control of your devices. And that's another reason I'm slightly suspicious about smart meters, I must say.
1: Yeah. That's it hasn't cool. happened
2: yet, but it, it will happen in the future.
1: Okay. Well, now you've warned us, we should be aware <laughs> and ready for when it happens. <laughs> yep, indeed. But like, I just wanted to say thank you so much for doing this event with us today. It's been really great. I also wanted to ask you if you have any last messages, key messages, points you wanted to share with the audience today.
2: <laughs> well, only, only really that, well, I suppose the thing I haven't said is, you know, don't forget the banks are not your friend the financial services industry isn't your friend. And as I say in the book, you know, treat it like a sort of vague acquaintance that you have to see from time to time that they always make you pay for the drinks. So (laughs) do be careful of them. They're not your friend. They're there to make money out of you, which is fine. That's how business works. But avoid the little tricks and traps that they set to make you spend a bit more money than perhaps you should. Um, And the other thing I'd say to people is don't be frightened of budgeting. As I said, it's just counting in one direction and counting back in the other. We can all do that. It's not difficult. Please do it and try and make sure that your income is at least equal to your expenditure if you possibly can, because otherwise that becomes debt.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. And I also wanted to thank our audience today and to Intelligence Squared.